So the reading is Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 4, 13. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simein, the son of Josek, the son of Joda, the son of Jonan, the son of Roseh, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shertiel, the son of Nerai, the son of Melchi, the son of Edi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliza, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Matha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxid, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and the son of God. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered, It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him an opportune time. 
feel like we need to give Ed a prize or something for getting through that reading and doing it so well. Great job, Ed. If in doubt, just fake it till you make it. Go confidently. Uh, My name's Ben, and it's great to be with you all this evening uh, as we look at God's Word together. If you've got that passage in front of you, it'll be helpful for us to be able to go through it. Uh, One of the great struggles of the Christian life is our daily battle with temptation. If you've been following Jesus for long, uh, longer than 30 seconds maybe, you'll know that it sometimes feels like temptation just comes at us left, right and centre. And often we can feel like we're losing that battle against temptation. Sometimes we feel weak, we can feel burdened, and even overwhelmed by the temptations that we face. And today we come to, uh, as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke, we, we come to this passage that we've just had here that has much to say to help us in our daily battle with temptation that we all experience. Uh, it's a passage that tells us about uh, Jesus' baptism, about his uh, genealogy, and it tells us that how even Jesus himself battled with temptation. And so as we see what it tells us about him, we'll find that it has lots to say to us as well in our daily fight against the things that tempt us. So let's jump in. Uh, First up, the Son of God's baptism. Have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke 3, verses 21 to 22. It says, When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Well, if you hear last Sunday, we heard John the Baptist telling us about Jesus, but here we see God himself telling us about Jesus, speaking directly from heaven. And what does he say to Jesus? You are my son, whom I love. Jesus is the son of God. But it's worth asking, what does that really mean? Uh, Because when we hear the phrase, Son of God, today, uh, we tend to think of God the Son. And that's understandable because Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Uh, God become human. The Bible's very clear about that. All that's true, but it's worth us being aware that's not always what's in mind when the phrase, Son of God, is used in the New Testament. That phrase, Son of God, has a background in the Old Testament, and its dominant usage was to refer not to a divine figure, but to refer to the Messiah, the anointed, the King of Israel. Uh, This comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, where David has been anointed as the King of Israel, spoiler alert for Hub Group, and he's ruling over God's people, and God makes David some big promises. God says to David, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. So God's promising that David's own offspring, his own son, will succeed him as king over Israel after he dies. And that this son will will build a house or build a temple. And and it was David's own son, Solomon, who built the temple after David died. But notice also that God promises, I will be his father and he will be my son. 
Now, that's not promising that Solomon will be divine, God the Son. No, it's promising that, that God is promising to be a father to Solomon, that the king of Israel would have a privileged and unique relationship to God, and that God would show fatherly care to him as he led his people. And this didn't just apply to Solomon, it applied to all the kings after him who are in the line of David. And Psalm 2 is a really helpful place to go to see that, though we won't do it tonight. Uh, all of them, in, all these kings in the line of David, were anointed kings of Israel, so they were called Messiah, they had that title, and all of them were called Son of God. And so when you come to Luke 3.22, at Jesus' baptism, God says, You are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. This is like a, like a composite quote uh, pushing us to different parts of the Old Testament, from two main parts. That you are my Son part points us to 2 Samuel 7. And the with you I'm well pleased part points us to Isaiah 42, where God speaks about his servant who he's pleased with, who his delight is in. And as you trace this, uh, this servant figure in Isaiah 42 and 44 and 49, and finally the well-known Isaiah 53, that's something we did earlier this year in our Isaiah series, we saw that this servant suffers and dies for the sins of his people. Isaiah 53, it says, uh, he was despised and rejected by mankind. It's talking about God's servant, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. But surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's the suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah. And so in the Old Testament, you had two figures who people were looking for and waiting for. Uh, One was the, the Messiah, the King, the Son of God, the conquering ruler who would come and save his people. And the other was the suffering servant who comes in weakness and humility and dies. And so for most first century Jews at the time of Jesus, who were longing for these Old Testament prophecies to be fulfilled, they would have been imagining two different people. Because the conquering king is so different to the suffering servant. But of course what God is saying here at Jesus' baptism is that those two expectations will be realised, not in two separate figures, but in one. Jesus is both the son of God, the conquering king, and the suffering servant who bears the sins of his people. Jesus suffered and died in our place, bearing our sins on the cross in weakness and humility. And then he victoriously rose from the dead, conquering sin and death as our glorious saviour king. And so at Jesus' baptism, we're not just being told that Jesus is divine, although that's absolutely true. He is God the Son, but we're being told that Jesus is the Messiah King and the suffering servant who comes to bear the sins of his people. So that's significant. That's what God himself is pointing his people towards. That's the Son of God's baptism. Now let's look at the Son of God's genealogy. Now have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke 3 from verse 23. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathat, son of Levi, and so on. Don't worry, I won't read it all again. 
So, so, but notice what's happening here. In the baptism, we've just been told that Jesus is the Son of God. And yet in the very next verse, it says Jesus was the Son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Now, why does it say so it was thought? Well, the obvious answer is that Luke's reminding us of the virgin birth that we've seen already in Luke. He's reminding us that although Joseph is Jesus' legal father, he's not his biological father. Jesus is the Son of God. But this is important because even though Jesus isn't biologically the son of Joseph, his lineage through him still matters. In Hebrew culture, if you're adopted into someone's family, you're 100% part of their legal family line and tribe and lineage. So it still matters that Jesus is in the line of Joseph. And if you follow down the list, it's significant that Jesus is descended from David, son of Jesse. Because as we've just seen in 2 Samuel 7, it was to David that the promise was made of kings that would come from his line, a kingdom that would never end. Jesus is the son of David who inherited that promise. It's also significant as you go up the list of names, I don't know what other names stood out to you in the genealogy, but it's significant that he's descended from Abraham. Because as we've seen in Genesis 12 over the last few weeks, it was to Abraham that God made promises to bless all the nations of the world through Abraham's offspring. Genesis 12, 2 to 3, God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Jesus is the son of Abraham through whom God is bringing blessing to all nations of the world, even now, as people turn to him and trust in him and receive forgiveness and salvation and are freed from the curse of sin. So it's significant that Jesus is descended from David. It's significant that he's descended from Abraham. But Luke doesn't stop there. He keeps going all the way back to Adam, who had no human father. Adam, you could call the son of God. And by using that language, Luke is drawing a strong contrast. Adam is the son of God who was tempted by Satan in Genesis 3 and failed. But Jesus is the son of God who in the very next verses is tempted by Satan and prevailed. And that brings us to our third point, the son of God's temptation. Have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke 4, verses 1 to 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Now, I feel like that might be the understatement of the century. Uh, he was without food for 40 days and he, you know, he was hungry. I get a bit, of a, a bit of flack around the office because I get hungry after 40 minutes, never mind 40 days. So Jesus would have been famished. But it's worth saying, going without food for 40 days is impressive, but it's not superhuman. Many people throughout history, some before Jesus, many inspired by him, many people have done 40-day fasts. And that length of time is about the longest you can go without food, before you start causing serious damage to your body. Often around the 45 to 60 day mark is when people start to die. So 40 days is doable, but it's very hard. 
And by that point, you are very weak and in a vulnerable position. And it's precisely in that weak and vulnerable position that we read about these three temptations by the devil. But it's worth asking, we're given three here, but what's with these three specific temptations that we read about in these verses? Well, remember what we saw at the baptism of Jesus, going from 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 42, that Jesus is both the Son of God, the conquering King, uh, but also the suffering servant who comes through suffering and death and weakness. And that those two are necessary part of Jesus' mission, his death and resurrection. And that's important to remember because the temptations of the devil are tempting him away from that mission. Tempting him to assume that conquering king position, but without the suffering. To have the crown without the cross. So, for example, in the first temptation in Luke 4 verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, this temptation is the most subtle, because if Jesus did choose to turn stones into bread, there's nothing intrinsically sinful about that, is there? There's no command from God in the law that says, thou shalt not turn stones into bread. That wouldn't be a very useful command if there was. So it's subtle, but it's a temptation to use Jesus' power to avoid suffering. It's a temptation for Jesus to avoid the road of self-denial and make things a bit easier for himself. You can't blame him if he did it. It's a temptation to take one small, supposedly harmless step on a road that would lead him away from the ultimate self-denial and suffering of the cross. You know, Jesus performed many, many miracles throughout his life. But did you know he never once performed a miracle for his own benefit or his own comfort? Read through the Gospels. Have a look, see if you can find one. Jesus never performed a miracle to make things easier on himself. He always and only used his power for the sake of others. And later on, when he was on the cross, people mocked him. I mean, have a look at what we read in Matthew 27, 42 to 43. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Now notice a few things. First, notice that king of Israel and son of God are used in parallel. Which reinforces what we saw earlier about how son of God is a title for the promised king of Israel. But second, notice that even as he's mocked and scorned, Jesus is unwilling, he refuses, to use his power to save himself or alleviate his own suffering. And it's precisely through him doing that that he saves us. He doesn't alleviate his own suffering, and yet that's precisely what the devil is tempting him to do here in Luke 4 in the first of these three temptations. There's a similar idea in the second temptation, but it's even more overt and a bit more obvious. Have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke 4, verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. The devil is tempting Jesus with a shortcut to glory. Just worship me, he says. And in an instant, you can have 
all the authority and the splendor of the world's kingdoms. Now, whether or not that really belongs to Satan, Satan certainly does have some authority in this world. Whether he's over-promising, he is the father of lies after all. What's clear is that Satan is offering him the crown without the cross. Which, of course, would be disastrous for us if he had taken him up on it. Or check, look at the third temptation from verse 9. The devil led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand at the highest point in the temple. If you're the son of God, he said. Notice that repetition. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, at this point, the devil is even being so crafty as to quote scripture. But he's twisting it. Psalm 91, the passage that he's quoting, is a beautiful psalm about God's love and care for his people. But the devil is using it to try and make Jesus put God to the test. To jump off the highest point of the temple, a fall guaranteed to be fatal, and expect God to protect him. And to jump like that in such a prominent and public place would surely get Jesus' praise and acclamation from the crowds. Once again, it's a temptation to get the crown without the cross, a quicker and easier path to glory. But although the devil tempts him three times, three times Jesus resists. And it's noteworthy that each time Jesus' response to temptation is not just willpower, but scripture. Each time Jesus quotes from God's word. Verse 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, quoting from Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. Verse 8, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, quoting from Deuteronomy 6.13. Verse 12, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test, quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16. I think that's a great uh, practical lesson for us as we face temptation as well. Uh, If the, the Son of God himself, who's far more strong than I am or than any of us are, even he himself didn't just rely on his own willpower, but kept going back to Scripture in the moments of temptation. And that's probably a great idea for us as well. Next time you're battling temptation, don't just fight, don't just sit there and fight the internal battle out with willpower. Take that moment to stand up, move, go grab a Bible, open it up, find a passage, start reading. Or it can be a huge help to memorize uh, some key Bible verses that you can call to mind in moments when you're being tempted. I can honestly say that's been a huge practical help to me as I fight against temptation day by day. And I know many others for whom it has been as well. So it's noteworthy that Jesus cites scripture each time the temptations come at him. But it's also noteworthy that he quotes those particular parts of scripture. Did you notice that they're all from the same part of the Bible? Deuteronomy 6 to 8. Jesus had a lot of Bible verses to choose from, yet he chose three from the same part of the Bible. And that's significant because that part of the Bible is addressed to Israel right after they were tested in the wilderness for 40 years. In fact, check out the context for Jesus' quote from Deuteronomy 8. Speaking to Israel, it says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years, Israelites, to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now notice a few key words there. God led them in the wilderness for 40 years, and he did it to humble and test them. And when you come to Luke 4, verses 1 to 2, you see that same language being used. The parallels are so strong to show the contrast once again. Where Israel failed, Jesus prevailed. Where Israel failed the test, Jesus succeeded. And it's not just Israel that failed, of course. You go through that long genealogy from Adam who failed. It's just name after name after name of people who succumbed to Satan's temptation. Adam the first sinner, Abraham, David, all of them. And if we're honest, all of us too. We've all given into temptation, but Jesus didn't. Where we fail, he has succeeded on our behalf. He lived the perfect life. He gave himself to die in our place on the cross. So that any who trust in him, his victory over sin and temptation can be given to us. So that any who trust in him can be forgiven and freed from the curse of sin. And so as we finish up, it's worth asking, based on all that we've seen, what does this mean for us today as we wrestle with temptation in our day-to-day lives? Well, I think Luke 4 is an enormous comfort to us, certainly is to me, because it shows us that Jesus knows what it is to be tempted, and he therefore empathizes with us in our struggle against sin. Uh, Hebrews 2.18 says this, uh, because he, Jesus, himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then in Hebrews 4, it picks up the same idea. If we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Isn't that a remarkable reflection on what Jesus has done for us and who he is for us? If you're here tonight and you're feeling discouraged by your sin, overwhelmed by temptation, if you're feeling the weight of your weakness, then be assured that Jesus knows what you're going through, that he's both able to empathize with you in your weaknesses as well as to save you from them. But, you know, some people object to this idea, the idea that Jesus fully knows what it is to be tempted. Some people object and they say that because Jesus was so good, he didn't experience temptation as much as those who, who live a life of giving in to sin and give in to temptation. But this is, it was helpfully addressed by C.S. Lewis, um, who wrote this, I think helpfully. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. That's an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation knows how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. 
That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. And it's true. Uh, Because as every one of us has experienced, if we reflect on it, temptation gets harder the longer it goes on. You know, when temptation first rears its ugly head, we often have the willpower to resist in that moment. But the longer that temptation goes on, the weaker our willpower gets, the more likely we are to give in. Which means that if we just sit there in that internal battle, if we don't get up and move and do something to break the cycle and get away from that temptation, the chances of us giving in get higher and higher and higher. And as a practical, a practical side note, that's one of the reasons that the Bible counsels us not just to fight temptation, but to flee from it. There's a big difference between those. You know, if you're on your phone, in your room, on your own, and you're feeling tempted, don't just stay there and try to fight it out with willpower. Get out of that situation. Get up and walk outside. Open up a Bible. Call a friend. Because the longer we face temptation, the weaker our willpower gets. And the more likely we are to give in. And given that that's the case, it makes it all the more remarkable that Jesus was tempted for 40 days and yet never gave in. You know, often people think of Jesus being tempted by Satan as just those uh, three short temptations. But no, if you look in Luke 4, verse 2, what does it say? It says, for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And that's a present tense verb. Some translations put it, he was being tempted by the devil. Throughout that whole time, the three temptations at the end that we're shown are just the climax of a long, drawn-out battle. Forty days where he didn't flee like we need to, but instead fought temptation head on. Forty days of pressure building. Forty days of weakness. Jesus felt the full brunt of the devil's temptation to an extent that no other human ever has. And yet he prevailed. So if you're here tonight and you're feeling discouraged by your sin, if you're feeling overwhelmed by temptation and feeling the weight of your weakness, be assured that Jesus knows what you're going through. He's able to empathize with you and deal gently with you. He doesn't draw away from you. He draws towards you in your weakness because he himself knows what it is to be tempted and to suffer. And yet with that critical difference, without sin, not only able to empathize with us in our suffering and our sin and temptation, but to save us from it. And so we can draw comfort from that, but we can also draw strength, can't we? You know, sometimes it feels like you're going to lose this war against temptation. It feels like you just keep losing. But even if you might lose battle after battle, don't be discouraged. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up the fight. Because Jesus has won. The victory is his. And if you are in Christ, the victory is yours too. So don't be discouraged. Don't give up. 
Keep fighting. Not out of your own willpower, but leaning on God's truth and looking to God's Son, who's won the victory for you. Brothers and sisters, the more we see Jesus, even as we sung in that song, Jesus, to you we turn our eyes, the more we see him, our great high priest, not only joining us in our struggle against sin, but triumphing over on our behalf, the more we see his free forgiveness and eternal life that he offers us, the more we see Jesus as he truly is, the more that will give us not only comfort, but also strength in our daily battles against temptation. So brothers and sisters, let's pray for God's help as we head out into another week of the fight against temptation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you sent your beloved Son to become one of us, to know our weakness and to share in our suffering and struggles and temptations in this life. Thank you that Jesus is our perfect high priest who knows our struggle with sin but never succumbed to it himself and is therefore able to save us from it. Father, help us not to grow weary in our fight against temptation. Even this week, Father, give us your strength by your Holy Spirit. Help us to flee from temptation. Help us to turn to your life-giving word to resist temptation. And most of all, help us to look to Jesus for his comfort and strength and his victory on our behalf. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.